we doing? Hey, I'm so glad you're here. It's so good to see you. Uh, we are in a series called The Art of Peace. And when we talk about peace in this, we want to talk the complete definition of peace, the shalom peace, which means completeness, wholeness, health, peace, welfare, safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, perfectness, fullness. I got that right this time. Can you believe that? It's pretty awesome. Uh, perfectness, fullness, rest, harmony, and the absence of agitation or discord. And we've been hitting some topics, you know, we talked about relationships and peace within our relationships. A couple weeks ago, we talked about, uh, or last week, we talked about financial peace. And um, this week, we're going to do a real light topic. It's every beauty pageant contestant's favorite wish. World peace. I would end world hunger and we would have world peace. Uh, we know that, man, wars, invasions, conflicts, political strife, division, party stuff, everything just keeps us divided. And that division constantly breeds conflict. And, and the world is broken and we're always in conflict or observing conflict. And, you know, we talk about a conflict cycle, right? Either you're in conflict, you're getting out of conflict, or you're getting ready to get back into conflict, you know? And it just feels like that's the constant cycle we, we live in and we see. And, and um, we just ask the question, how do we get peace? I mean, when we look at the world around us, I mean, how do we, how do we find peace and how do we get there? And we know that that's only found through, through a relationship with Christ, but we're going to teach through this. And Adam did a, did a great job setting this, this teaching up for this weekend because uh, we're, going to, we're going to be really diving into where peace is going to come from, and peace is going to come through the conflict. And uh, I told Adam after they finished the worship set, I was like, man, you just preached the message. And he said, I'm sorry. I said, no, this thing is so thick that I need all the help I can get. So if you got your Bible, go to Isaiah chapter two. We're gonna go from Isaiah chapter two and just kind of work through there to Revelation. So um, we've, got, we've got quite a bit of ground to cover. So that's why, that's why I, can't, I can't play around this weekend. I can't mess around. So um, here we go. Um, you got the funny joke about the beauty pageant, right? And I hope you laughed at that. I don't, I don't, I don't have any other jokes written, but knowing me, something's gonna come out. You know, because I always say something stupid, and, 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 and so here we go. But uh, Isaiah, give me, let me give you some background on, on Isaiah, the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah is a, he's a prophet of God, and after Solomon, King Solomon died, so you had King David, the greatest king in Israel's history, uh, man after God's own heart, his son Solomon takes over, takes the throne. After Solomon dies, you have a kingdom divided. So you have, you have Israel and you have Judah. And, and Isaiah is, is given prophecy to Judah and, and Jerusalem, but primarily to, primarily to Judah. And uh, what he's doing, the whole, the whole premise, he's speaking for God. That's what a prophet does. He speaks for God and he's calling the nation back to obedience to God, and then he's going to tell us about the Messiah. And uh, so he's calling the nation to repentance and obedience. We need that message today. That message is, is, is timeless. So I, it, we'll start out in chapter two, but he says, the word of the Lord that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Remember, they're divided. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. 
And many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall, listen to this, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. He is speaking and pointing of a time that's coming when the division will cease, when God's kingdom is established, when people will abandon false gods, people will lay down the art of war and the wars will stop and, and the training for war will stop and there will be peace and God will rule and reign. He's pointing to a future date. And, and I've got to say, we're not there yet. Did you know that? <laughs> okay, just trying to help you here. But when we look at that, we're not there yet. So how do we get there? You know, a lot of us think I, I, we don't like where we're at and we want to know how to get there, right? And we want to know what the route looks like. I mean, I, I, the other day we got in the car and it doesn't matter when I get in the car if I know the route or not. I mean, I, there are some places that I get and I can drive. I don't, need, I don't need navigation to tell me how to get where I'm going, but I use navigation because I want to see what the traffic looks like. And I want to see how red every road in the area is, you know? And I'm, I think they need to take one further than maroon. You know, I think that's the hardest one I've seen. But I like to see the way we're gonna get there. And man, I really wish I could see where the maroon is, where the traffic is and everything. So how we're gonna get there? Isaiah starts to unpack prophecy. Remember, this is 700 years before Jesus was born. So Isaiah starts to unpack some prophecy. Flip over to Isaiah chapter nine. In chapter nine, he gives a prophecy of what's coming. In verse six and seven, he says, for, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over all his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time and forevermore, the zeal, which is passionate commitment of the Lord of hosts, will do this. So Isaiah is given a prophecy where there, there's a vision of the future. And vision is just, it's, it's, it's a clear picture of a preferable future. So he gives us a vision of what's coming. Then he starts telling us how we're going to get there. We're going to get there through this son that is born. And this son is the Messiah. He's given prophecy of the Messiah before he's, even, before he's even considered by anyone else. And it says the government will be on his shoulders. Man, can you imagine if, if Jesus had control over the government today? I mean, 99.9999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999
and he came to redeem us. And then Isaiah goes on to tell us how he redeems us. Flip over to Isaiah chapter 53. I told you we're gonna move from here all the way through the end, folks. But Isaiah then speaks about this Messiah. Here's how the redemption comes. He starts out, he says, um, um, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He's saying, Jesus, this, this Messiah is not gonna come and be this, this, this striking figure that all the nations are gonna automatically turn to. He's not gonna look like the leader. He's not gonna look like the political Messiah that everybody hopes for. He's not gonna have the, 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 the nice smile. He's not gonna be well kept. He says that, that, that people looked at him and esteemed him not. And then he says in verse four, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How do we get the redemption? He's speaking, this is over 700 years before Jesus is born. But if you notice, he's speaking in the past tense. On him, all of our iniquity, all of our sin, all of our unrighteousness, all of our brokenness, everything, all of our conflict, all of our selfishness, all of our pride was laid on him. And this is speaking in the past tense because Jesus before the foundation of the world is the lamb slain. That's what Revelation 13, eight teaches us that, that Jesus was slain. This all happened before the foundation of the world. So before God said in Genesis, let us create man in our own image because the reason he said us is you have God the father, you have the son and you have the Holy Spirit. You have the triune nature of God. The Trinity is having a conversation. Let us make man in our image. But here, they knew what was gonna happen because God stands outside of time. He's the alpha and the omega. He knew what was gonna happen. He knew sin was gonna enter the world. He knew that, the, the, that Satan was gonna deceive nations. He was gonna divide hearts and they knew what was gonna happen. And before we were even created in the image of God, Jesus said, I will take that. It's kind of like sitting in a staff meeting when you got this massive project, right? And they're talking about the weight of this and you're thinking that's a lot of responsibility, that's a lot of hours and there is no bonus pay for this. And I, you just sit there and you're like. <laughs> and then you're hoping that somebody steps forward but that Jesus stepped forward and said the weight of the sin and all the iniquity and all the pain and all the brokenness, I'll take that on. And he knew that the only way that there could be forgiveness and redemption in that was through blood, which meant he knew what he had to do. He knew he would go through intense suffering. He knew he would go through brutal pain and the brutality of the cross. 
He took our guilt and sin and paid for our punishment. Verse five, let me read it again. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Jesus was a chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds were healed. He knew the only way to peace was the brutality of the cross. He knew the only way for peace to happen was for him to take the punishment. And he took the punishment. When you go to Colossians chapter one, verse 19, in him, in Christ, in Jesus, all the fullness of God's deity was pleased to dwell. So what that means is Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man. And in this man, Jesus, the fullness of God dwells. And through him, through Jesus, the fullness of God to reconcile to himself all things, all things, whether, whether on earth and heaven. And how did he do that? He made peace by the blood of his cross. The only way, look, look the only way that peace is gonna happen is through the brutality. And what that does is reconciles us to God. I mean, you go back a couple of weeks ago when we talked about relationship peace. You know, when, there, when you're in a relationship that is broken and it's, and it's struggling and there's strife and there's tension, it's hard to have peace, right? But when there's reconciliation, God starts to bring that peace back into it. That's exactly what Jesus is doing for us through the cross. He was crucified for us. The crucifixion made the peace available and the resurrection secures the power for us to live in it. Because Jesus just didn't die for our peace. He was raised again on the third day. So that secures our ability to live in the peace that comes through Christ, that only comes through the cross. And I'm, I, it, I, I, I struggle with this because the only way that you get to the peace is through incredible conflict. And then he reconciles us through the cross. And when we, when we throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus and ask for the grace, it takes grace to give us that. Because if, if, if all the iniquity that we have was not laid on him, that means we're responsible for it. That means we have a bill due. And by his grace, he took care of that. I mean, we, we think about justice, you know, God's justice. That's, that's us. God's justice would be us dying for our iniquities. God's mercy is just letting us live. But God's grace says you have peace with God and you're reconciled with God. That's the beauty and the power of grace. And when we accept that grace, listen, we're saved. We're saved. That's a term that we've heard, you're saved. We've used that in the church. When you, when you submit to Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, you're saved. Well, let, let's go on and let's really understand what we're saved from. Because he took our iniquities. He took our shame. He took our brokenness. And he saved us from it. But it gets even deeper, it gets even bigger because when we're reconciled, he gives us the right to be called children of God. That we're no longer these, these unrighteous outcasts. We're not God's stepchildren. We're not God's orphans. We are God's children. He gives us that place in his family. Skip ahead to 1 John chapter two. This is, this is what John is showing us that happens through that reconciliation. He says, and now little children, abide in him. Who? Abide in Christ. Because John would also write in his gospel, 
In John 15, when Jesus said, abide in me and I abide in you, there's a relationship. It's a living relationship. It's a connected relationship. It's a peace relationship. It's a reconciled relationship. He says, abide in him, abide in Christ, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So what's happened here is, he says, you know, those who are saved are called children of God. And then he says, if you're a child of God, listen, he takes away your guilt and your shame. So when he comes back, when he appears, what, what John is saying is that Jesus is coming back. That when he comes back, we don't have to be afraid of that day because we're his kids. We don't shrink back in fear because we know that we're his. It's an identity issue, right? I know whose I am. If I know that I'm his, if I know, and I, if, if I really live my life with the true understanding that through Christ, all of my iniquity, all of my sin, all of my debt, all of my brokenness was laid on his shoulders and he paid for it in full, it's a done deal. And he's not coming back to look at me in shame. And he's not looking for me to be in shame. So he says, he's coming back. And then he goes into chapter three. See what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, if we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he, Jesus, is pure. But look at that. It says, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. There's this idea in scripture that if we go back even to Isaiah, when he says he was pierced for our transgressions, it's a completed deal. When Jesus was on the cross, he said it is finished. And here he says, what will be, we don't see it yet. It's, it's, a, it's a theological term that we say, already, not yet. It's already been accomplished. It's already been finished. It's already been completed, but we're not yet living in it. It's like on my street, they're building some houses and there's houses that look like, man, they, there should be people living in them right now. The house to me looks already finished, but it's not yet that somebody's living in there. That's where we exist. We live in that tension. It's already been paid. The cross has already been done. Jesus bore our sins. As Hebrews tells us, he bore it and he will not bear it again. It's a done deal. It is finished, Jesus said. He, he was resurrected three days after his crucifixion. He spent 40 days on the planet, on the earth, walking with his disciples. They end up going to the Mount of, of Olives and there he ascended into heaven. And the angel says, why, do you, why, do you, why are you watching? What are you looking for? And the angel tells the disciples that are staring up at the sky after Jesus is gone, he says, he'll come back. Jesus even told him before his crucifixion in John, he said, don't be afraid. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, then I will come back and receive you for me. So Jesus is telling us even in his earthly ministry, like I'm, I'm leaving I've got, I've got a job to do. I came here for the job. And the disciples are like, no, just stay with us. Stay with us. See, we like to create the holy moments and then keep them for ourselves. 
But Jesus is looking at something so much bigger. He's not here to overthrow Rome when he was born in that time. I mean, we look for Jesus and we pray for revival in our nation. And let me, let me challenge you on this. When you pray for revival, what are you really envisioning? Are you envisioning an upheaval or a correction or some kind of calming in our political arena? Are you looking for world wars that are nations against nations? Are you looking for that to, to cease? Or are you looking for a move of the spirit of God in the heart of the believers that take the peace of God to the world? Because what you're hoping for is not gonna happen yet. But when you pray for revival and the spirit of God moves in you and fills you, then you become an agent of God in this world. And all these other things that we're wishing for and hoping for just keep going down their own spiral. But yet the people of God can stand firm and not be shaken in all the mess that's going on around us. And we can stand firm because we know where our hope is. We don't shrink back in fear at this world. We don't shrink back in fear at the enemy. We don't shrink back in fear at all the events happening around us. But the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, which guards our heart and our mind in Christ Jesus, lets us stand firm on his word to say, this world is broken, but I'm not of this world. I have a home. He went to prepare it for me. And he said, if I'm going to go prepare it, I'm going to come back and I'm going to bring you home. Now let's look at that. Let's look, let's look at what happens with that. Flip over to the scary book for everybody. <laughs> Revelation. Revelation. Revelation was written by John, the apostle John. He was banished, and it's a vision God gave him. And I know people get so tripped up about Revelation. You need to read it. There's actually a blessing in this, in this book. And in the book of Revelation, it says, blessed are the people who read it. <laughs> Imagine that. So we live in the tension of the already not yet. Let me, let me show you, let me show you how the peace in this world happens, okay? The brutality of the cross. But then you have this day, Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many, many diadems. A diadem was the crown of crowns. That was the chief crown to show that you were the chief king over all the kingdoms. And it says on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. Hmm, reminds me of John 1, right? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This is Jesus. Boy, the robe dipped in blood and the diadems. And let me, let me just finish this because some of y'all's picture of Jesus is getting, gonna get radically changed here. Because you think Jesus is some little, some little blonde haired, blue eyed guy that just sits and he pets sheep. And he, Blessed are the sheep that come to me, you know. Is that Jesus was not a good looking man. That's what Isaiah said. And let me tell you something. You are going to see the man that Jesus is. You're going to see the king that Jesus is and the warrior that Jesus is. And he's fixing to handle up. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he's a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he's called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword 
with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That winepress is not an automated process. That's like standing, like he is handling business. That's Jesus coming. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's a lot of kings and a lot of lords, but he is the king of them and he is the Lord over them. He is over it all. And Jesus is coming back. He returns. There's gonna be a great battle. Go down to verse 19. He says, and I saw the beast. This is, this is the, the Antichrist. And, the, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So you've got an epic, massive battle and the beast was captured and with it the false prophet, that's the Antichrist, I'm sorry, who in his presence, who in its presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its, its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Doesn't sound too peaceful. I mean, it's hard to think about Christmas, right? Let there be peace on earth. I mean, Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace about a sword. And he's bringing it. You know what I love about this image that I get in my mind? is like, you got Jesus and he's, his robe is dipped in blood. Why? Because it's his blood. He's the one who shed blood for this victory. And all the armies of heaven behind them, they're in white linen. They're, in, they're on white horses. Look, I'm, wear, I'm wearing like light gray pants and I'm gonna be lucky to get home this weekend without something on them. <laughs> this is the heaven's army going to war and they're not in fatigues, they're not in battle gear, they're not kitted up with armor. They're in white linen, why? Because they're just like, this is done. All the kings of the earth and all the enemy fighting, boy, they're, they're probably coming at it with everything they got. <laughs> Can you imagine being an angel on that? Like, <laughs> look at that. <laughs> you look so cute. <laughs> hey, watch this. Jesus is riding. There he goes. Oh, it's done. And then, then some angels are gonna go, man, we, we saddle up our horses for this. Well, let's just get back and start singing holy, holy, holy to the Lord Almighty, right? It's, it's, it's gonna be that quick and that simple, but listen, we're not at peace yet. Revelation 20, then I saw an angel come down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. It's also called the abyss in some translations and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. This is the millennial reign. So there'll be a moment when Jesus comes down and he, he, he handles Satan, he, he locks him away, and then you've got this millennial reign. And listen, this creates a lot of debate in theology. Is it, are you amillennial or are you postmillennial or are you premillennial? It doesn't matter. Let me tell you something. That's open-handed stuff on when the book says, black and white, right there, put your finger on the verse, that Jesus will reign for a thousand years. 
a millennium. And then he says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God in Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So what happens next? I'm glad you asked. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. So there's another battle. We've got a thousand year reign, but another battle coming. This is the last one. Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And you imagine that. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. I think of Elijah on Mount Carmel. Heather and I stood on Mount Carmel this year, looking down into the valley, the valley of Megiddo. Fire came down from heaven to consume them. That's the victory. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Game over. Jesus wins. You see the incredible conflict before you get to the peace. Well, what about us? I said, Jesus saves us. You're saved, right? You're saved. We hear that word, you're saved. What does he save us from? Look at, look at verse 14. Then death and Hades, that's death and hell, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's what we're saved from. The eternal punishment of our iniquity, of our sin, of our brokenness. That's, that's, that's what we get saved from. So to get peace, there will be conflict. And for now, the only peace on this earth is the peace of God in his people. And I don't make excuses for brokenness in the world, but here's what I know. Here's what I take away from this, that you gotta understand something about God's character and where we fit with this. First of all, God is peace. His very nature is peace. And you go, well, I don't see that. When I read the Old Testament and I even, I mean, man, this battle that's coming, how is God a God of peace? I mean, we, we read it over and over. There's numerous references in scripture to the God of peace, the God of peace. In Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be upon you. The, the God of peace, the God of peace. God is peace. He desires peace. God is where we find our peace. It's a fruit of the spirit. No God, no peace. And God's desire is peace. He created us in his image to live in peace. And he desires unity. He doesn't like the division. He loves unity. Look at the church. I mean, the church is a beautiful example of the unity that God desires. We're so different. Yet we come together and when we come together, listen, we come together under one thing, the name of Jesus. He supersedes it all. And there's peace in our relationship. When we have a, when we have a world that looks at the outside and says, you shouldn't be together. 
this shouldn't work like this. The church stands not as a reflection of our society, but as a reflection of the kingdom because God is a God of peace and a God of unity and desires that to be in his children, his children. I mean, he wants peace in his family. Who doesn't want that? And God is peace. And then our part, and listen, we rebel. People rebel against God's desire for peace. Selfishness, pride, autonomy means freedom from God's rule. That, that, that makes us puts us in rebellion for God's peace. I mean, makes us enemies of God, right? And Romans teaches us that, that the mind was hostile. That if we're set on the flesh, we're set on ourselves, we're set on things of this world, it's hostile to God. It's hostility towards God. We set ourselves against God. Where did all this start? It started in Genesis 3. I mean, Genesis 3 is the starting point for this rebellion and everything thereafter is our continuation of it. And we just continue to live in this. We just perpetuate conflict. We're at war with God. We're at war with each other. We're at war with ourselves. And we just constantly live in this conflict. And the, the, the root cause of the conflict, listen, it, it's sin. I mean, we can talk about conflicts. Well, the root cause of that war was this and that invasion was this. Ultimately, the root cause of conflict is sin because we're born broken. And the other day we were watching our granddaughter and, and Heather was holding her and, and she turned her head real quick and she hit her nose on Heather's head. And Heather, and she was crying and everything and Heather's like, oh, you know, she's comforting her and soothing her. But then all of a sudden our granddaughter starts hitting my wife. <laughs> I'm like, uh-uh. But we, it was funny because we, I looked at her and I said, that's proof positive that we're born broken. You know, instead of like, oh, reconciliation. No, no, bam, bam, you know, even from a one-year-old girl and she's redheaded, so she's feisty and fiery anyway. But we just perpetuate that conflict and that's where Jesus steps in. From Isaiah, he's teaching us and then all of a sudden we see Jesus step in and Jesus restores our peace with God and enables us to be peacemakers in the world. It's not just that I walk around with the peace of God. It's extended through me where God says, I, I have you as an agent of my peace. It's ambassadors, right? I mean, go to 2 Corinthians chapter five, you know, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that means he's been saved. He's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And all this is from God. We didn't do it ourselves. Who through Christ reconciled us. So there's the reconciliation. There's the cross at work and what Jesus did on the cross. And he reconciled us. But listen, he gave us a ministry of reconciliation. Why do we as the church go around spreading division? We have a ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Their iniquities, their brokenness their sin, and entrusting to us a message of reconciliation. So we have a ministry. The ministry has a message. And that, then we're agents. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors. He says, God's making his appeal through us. An ambassador is just this. It's an appointed agent. So through you and through me, God saves me. God saves you. And then he makes, he gives us a ministry of reconciliation and that's peace. He gives us a message of peace and then we become authorized agents to share that peace. So the peace in this world 
is right here. And how does that grow? Listen, it doesn't grow on a political platform and it doesn't grow through treaties. It grows when we share the gospel. When we share this message that all of their iniquities and all their brokenness was laid on him. And we don't have to live in fear. We can live in peace. We know the end of the story. And and here's what I know. My name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And I don't have to fear that, that whole thing. I will see my King, my Lord, the one who is faithful and true, the wonderful counselor, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, take care of everything for me to live in peace. That's what Jesus said in John 16, 33. He says, I've shared this with you. I've said these things to you. That in me, in Christ, you may have peace. And in this world, you'll have tribulation. You'll have conflict. You'll have trouble. You'll have brokenness. You'll have despair. you have all these things. But take heart. Jesus said, I have overcome the world. He didn't say, I will overcome the world. Or I hope to overcome the world. He says, I have. Because he is the fullness. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. You want world peace. Just let the peace of God rule and reign in your heart so that you live in that peace. Let me close it with this one verse. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Shalom. Jesus, we love you. You are our Messiah. You are our victor. You are our Lord. You are our Savior. You are a wonderful counselor, mighty God. You are our Prince of Peace. And you've made peace a reality through your cross, Jesus, and your resurrection. And I pray for you to reconcile people today. I pray for people today whose names are not written in the book of life. I pray for people who are living in fear and living in bondage to their sin and living in, 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 in shame of their iniquities and all the brokenness. I pray, Jesus, right now, you step into their heart and as they hum- humble themselves to you and they say, Jesus, I need you to save me. In that instant, the old is gone, the new has come, and you've declared them a child of God who is the righteousness of God. Thank you for salvation, Jesus. Thank you that we don't face this war, this battle, and this ending, but we face eternal glory with you. We do pray for this world, Jesus. It's yours. You created it. You love it. And we ask you to use us, grow us in peace so we can extend peace to the world around you. We'll be faithful with it. And I'm asking you to give us your spirit so that we don't live in fear, but we live in peace and love. And we move through this life with a sound mind. And we pray all this to the word of God who is the King of kings, who is faithful and true. Your name is Jesus. 
In your name we pray all of this. Amen.